Manage your oil field operations from anywhere with rigor online or offline. Whether it's scheduling and dispatching jobs, tracking employee hours, managing equipment rentals, or inspections and maintenance, you can create, review, approve, and upload all types of field tickets and agreements securely from any device. Plus, you can generate invoices same day and run powerful operation management dashboards on your desktop or phone. No paper, no errors, no headaches. Learn more at rigor.us. Link is in the show notes. Welcome to the Oil and Gas Sales and Marketing Podcast, where every week your hosts, Mark LaCour and Matt Bertrand, share proven strategies and real-world tactics to help you connect with customers and close more deals. Let's do this. Hey, welcome back. It's time to jump into the show. Before we jump into the show, we got a review, Matt. It's a five-star Great resource and product reviews. I've been an account manager in oil and gas for 10 years, and I've learned more by listening to this show than I thought possible. I'm now partnered with my marketing peer. Good for you. Thanks, Mark and Matt. And the increase in our sales is noticeable. Also love the product reviews. And that's Chris from the United States. So everybody, thank you for the reviews. We'd love to have more of them. If you love the show, what five-star reviews. If you don't like the show, leave us a three-star review. Tell us what you like to change. And it is cool to get some feedback on the product reviews because I'm never quite sure if people like that part of this show or not. Well, I'm definitely using the ring right now. So <laughs> He is actually using the ring that we reviewed a couple of weeks ago, and it's made a difference. All right, something a little bit different today. We have a guest. Uh, we have Bill Morrison, who's the EMEA Managing Director for Sandler. And Bill, you and I have known each other for longer than I want to admit. It's been a long time. We worked together years ago, and you've always been an incredible sales coach. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you taught me early in my career that I still use to this day, and it's kind of nice catching up with you. But you've been doing the sales training for a long time, haven't you? Yeah, I have. And I think I've been a sales trainer, sales consultant, sales coach now full time for about 18 years. And we've seen a lot of change in that time. But since you and I work together, a lot of things have changed. One thing has not changed is my charming Scottish accent. So just let any of your listeners know, this is as good as the accent gets. So catch up. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to go into the past where at one point Bill had a doppelganger and had his same name that was on the wanted list and would cause issues that's, at the airport. <laughs> All right. So, Bill, we have a lot of sales managers, sales VPs that listen to this show. And one of the questions we get a lot is, how do we coach our sales team, and especially these new younger sales professionals, you know, how do we coach? But before we get to the how, I want you to kind of talk about a little bit about what are the benefits of sales coaching? Mm, It's a great question. Most of last year, I spent a lot of my time asking myself one question over and over again, because apart from anything else, I am a sales leader. I have my own time. And my favorite question was this, what's my job? What's my job as a leader? What am I actually doing? And time and time again, I was asked, and I got to the one question, the one answer is this. My job as a sales leader is to make my team successful. That's it. If I make my team successful and I mess up everything else, I'm going to be okay. If I do everything else super good, but my team's not successful, then I've failed. And what I see a lot of managers doing is we focus on the management And management means we allocate resources and we do a lot of reporting and we shuffle data, but we don't lead. And looking at it this way, coaching is leading. And that means we dedicate our actual working time to making our people successful. And that's what coaching is. 
I love it. It's so true. And the, what's kind of advantage for us as sales professionals versus accountants or project managers is there's a way to measure our success. So it's black and yeah. white. So it's, you know when you're doing a good job, you know when you're not. So the benefits, I love the fact that you put this in a leadership frame because it is true leadership. You know, each salesperson, people call them a sales team, but most of the time it's really not a team environment because each salesperson has their own individual goals. And so it's almost like having a a bunch of individual contributors that you have to pull across the line. And some of those individual contributors will have different strengths and weaknesses than others. How do you figure out how to coach those? Yes, that's a brilliant question. And I agree with you on the use of the word team. We use the word team far too often. But in fact, a sales team is actually like a team of athletes. And yeah. they all have to be individually successful. So you have to treat them as individuals. And again, it's like, I know America, I still live in the US, I know America a little bit. And if I look at American football, you say, okay, well, you've got a coach, you've got a quarterback, and you've got a cheerleader. Now, which of those are you? And when it comes to making that team successful, being a coach which means you're not on, we would call it a pitch, you call it a field. You're actually not on the field, you're one step back making sure the right people are doing the right plays and that all your individuals are contributing. Now, what that means is you can't just use a one-size-fits-all. A manager's job is a checklist job, and there's nothing wrong with that. Have I done everything proper? Is everyone trained? Have they all done the programs? Have they done their product knowledge testing? All that stuff is good. That is a recipe for mediocrity. What you've got to do is to say, my job is to make each individual successful. Now, what that really means is you've got to use a bit of a toolbox, Now, when I say, what is my job? My job is to make my people successful as individuals. There are four key things you've got to learn to master. Here's what the four key things are, okay? Here's the four key things you've got to be able to do as a leader. Number one, you must pass on the skills you have to the next generation. You've got to give them the skills. The classic skill is this. Most salespeople love to talk. They love to show off. They love to deliver value. And that's just lovely. That's not their job. Their job is to collect information. So you have to train your people on how to ask good questions. For example, if I'm talking to one of my salespeople and they come back from a great customer call, I'm going to go, why is the customer doing anything at all? Why are they doing it now? And why would they do it with us? Now, the salesperson's job is to be able to answer those questions. And my job is to make sure that you know what questions to ask. So number one, you've got to train people. Number two, you've got to hold them accountable. Mm. Look at it this way. You know the old thing about the wood chopper? The guy's cutting down trees and his axe is blunt. So he says, why don't you stop and chop your axe? He says, no, I can't. I'm too busy chopping down trees. Because you've got to stop and make sure people know what they should be doing. And that's accountability, and people don't enjoy doing that. Number three, coaching. And what coaching actually means is you don't solve your team's problems. You help them solve the problems with the tools you've already given them. And number four is you've got to be a mentor. You must be the best example possible of how it should be done. You do those four things, you're on a strong path to be a leadership coach. If you don't, you're a manager. Yeah. I love those analogies. <laughs> that, that was no, that was really well done. 
So let's focus just on that coaching part for a couple of minutes, if you don't mind. When do you start sales coaching an organization? Do you start it with your first rep or do you wait till you have 10? Like at what point do you coach? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm going to go one step before that. If you're listening to this and you're a salesperson and you intend to be a sales leader at some point, or if you've got a team of 150 people, because I talk to both of those, you should be coaching now. Let's say, for example, you're a salesperson and sometimes you work with a subject matter expert, like an engineer or an apps person, something like or a marketing person or a product manager. You have to coach that person. Now, coaching does not depend on management line responsibility. So you have to coach them and say, well, this is what we're going to do, why we're going to do it, this is my role, this is your role. And at the end of the conversation with the customer, let's do a little recap. That's coaching. So you have to have a coaching mentality as a salesperson, because if you are a salesperson, you are effectively a leader. You're leading a complex bit, for goodness sake. So straight away, you got to do it. And the big thing you've got to do is get yourself off the field. You have to be a quarterback sometimes. Get yourself off the field and make your people do the work for, for their behalf. Yeah. So here's one I personally struggle with because we have a small sales team. In that, I have no problem telling my salespeople what they need to accomplish and how we're going to measure it. But it bothers me, Bill, a little bit if they get there a different way than I would get there, right? So from a coaching point of view, I got to be aware of that bias because what I don't want to do is make my sales team replicas of me. In fact, some of them have bettered me in a lot of the skill sets, right? And I don't want to clamp that down. So when you're in a coaching environment, how do you balance your knowledge and experience with the fact that you're going to have to let your salespeople fail a little bit so that they can actually really learn what's best for them? Yeah, yeah. And I think there's two parts to that answer. The first part is to encourage courage. Selling, and oil and gas, and any other industry, but selling is a non-fatal occupation. We have a zero fatality, but you're not going to die doing it, right? So one thing is you've got to be willing to be quite brave. Nobody's going to die. And until you've sold something, you've sold nothing. So it's okay to make mistakes so long as you learn a lesson from it. So that's one big thing. And I'm super happy I've seen deals going south, which I know I could have saved. But I let the salesperson go down with it because I knew it was the best investment I could make. The second thing is this. I often know what I want them to do, but I want them to find their own path to it. And I do that by questionings. What are we trying to achieve? What are our options? How can we tackle this? What do you think we should do? What's other options are here? Is there a different version of that? So I give myself a little toolbox of coaching questions to help people hopefully find their own way to the right path. But as you say, they'll often find a path that's different from mine. And that's a key thing to accept. Yeah, especially with this new younger workforce, it, it is amazing me how much these younger sellers are digital natives, right? And so they had that advantage over me. At the same time, they haven't negotiated five MSAs with Fortune 100 companies, right? And they need to learn how to pace themselves. So it's, that's one of those things I can transfer to my sales team is that bit of knowledge and experience. At the same time, I'm learning from them around digital tools and technology. So it's kind of the coaching is kind of two ways, even though I'm the one that's a little bit more senior. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. We have a program manager in our company called the Zeta. And I said, the Zeta says, look, take two weeks, go away and learn AI. Then come back and teach me, right? And that's what she does. She went away and she did chat GBT and Tome and a few other systems. 
and came back and taught me because she's going to learn it much faster than I do. So it's good to have this balance to use the strengths of younger generation with the ones that we've got. So yeah, I agree with you totally. Bill, I want to jump in here and maybe social selling. Mark, you kind of touched on that. Bill, can you talk about your perspective on that and how, because less people are answering the phone, right? Like less people are answering the phone. You're sending more emails. You're using social media more nurture to build that relationship. Also capturing data intelligence on what the client might need. Just like I've seen a huge shift in sales to more analytics, marketing automation, all that sort of thing, social selling. And I just kind of would love to take the conversation a little bit that direction. Sure. I agree with you totally. It's been really, because for me, I mean, Mark and I have been of a similar generation. In the good old days, you could get an oil and gas directory and pretty much pick up the phone and you could call people and hey, we're doing this thing. Do you want to find out more about it? You have a meeting. That was great. Now that's less and less likely to happen. I've had people who called me apologize for calling me because for a certain generation, actually calling someone is not acceptable because it's such a new, because it's a generational thing. Here's look at it this way. When you're talking about social selling, here's a model that we've developed locally here in Switzerland. It's four stages. It's part of social selling. One, evaluate. Who do I really want to talk to and what do I want to say? And this comes right down to persona marketing. Specifically, who do I want to talk to and what do I want to say? So the first thing is spend a whole bunch of time not thinking about you and your marvellous product offering, but think about them. How are you going to change their world? If you can't change their world, why on earth would they want to talk to you? It's number one. Two is the hard part. How do you engage with them? Starting the conversation, making them want to talk to you is the tough part. How do you engage? And that is to a large extent, contact and permission based. Now we have a phrase, which I got from one of our PMs. We call it whims. Would it make sense? See, what we say is, we have this thing, we have that thing, we have the, would it make sense for us to send this to you? We never said anything. We ask them if they want us to send it to them. So that's, that whims permission approach is the key to engagement. Then after that, your mission is not to pitch, but to exchange what's going on in their world, what are their cap- capabilities, how do those things match? And only then you can talk about execution and closing. So we are big fans of evaluate, engage, exchange and execute. And we build our comm strategy based on that, but it's entirely content and permission-based. And you've got to have the dialogue, otherwise you're a podcaster. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> the personas are interesting. That's right smack in Matt's world. And Matt, before you joined us, Bill and I were talking about how that's one of the new things that they focus on. I'd love to see y'all go down that rabbit hole a little bit. Yeah, okay. I'll, let, me, let me tell you a real beauty, right? As I heard this one, the oil and gas world, right? An IT system called an ERP system, Enterprise Resource Planning System. It's the system that most big organizations run. One of our clients has a specialist ERP system, which they use for oil and gas for transportation. So here's the thing. They sell to the head of operations for low cost oil and natural gas transportation companies. They are the low cost supplier to low cost suppliers, and they sell to heads of operations. They know exactly who they're talking to. Mid-tier, low-cost suppliers who've got a margin squeeze, who don't have a big staff. So they know exactly who their persona is. 
They've got a lot of compliance issues. They've got a lot of dynamics issues and change. They've got a lot of traceability issues. And they say, see those things there? We do those things cheaper than anyone else that you can ever bring in. So they know exactly who they're talking to. That's why I think it's so important to spend time doing persona understandings. Well, Bill, the analogy, I liked your analogies earlier that come to my head are you got to fish where the fish are, right? And you got to know what type of fish you're, you're going after. And really part of that first planning stage. And a lot of times as people transition to more online selling, they don't have a clear understanding of that target persona and where those people hang out and what, you know, how to speak to them online versus like, I mean, selling online and selling face-to-face and then selling phone, all different, right? Different like approaches, certainly the permission-based piece of it, but figuring out who those target personas are, having a campaign for each different target persona. And then you, you let into it, I call it like customer journey. Like what is that person gonna see online and what are they going to be searching for? What's that problem in their head that they're trying to figure out? And if you can, you can when they Google or when they're on social media, get into that conversation on why it would make sense for them. And then they start seeing your stuff. It starts building additional trust and value. And then you bring them on until they raise their hand or you get them on the phone. Exactly. And I think one of the things I know is very close to both of your hearts is the link between sales and marketing. And this is where it comes in. This isn't a salesperson's job. It's just not their job. Now, here's the big issue for me. When you talk about the the social selling, interestingly enough, one of the biggest impacts is I think it's changed the definition of what marketing is. See, it used to be, when I did my marketing studies many years ago, used to say sales is one-to-one. Marketing is one-to-many. In the marketing, people would put out some mass communications, some advertising, and do-do-do-do-do. Now we're getting to a place where marketing has got a split one, they've got the brand to manage, and that's a rare, mysterious thing. I'm never going to do the branding world. What I think marketing have got to do now is they accept the responsibility of not just the one to many, but it's mass customization. And I think marketing owns a persona, and marketing owns the lead nurturing journey before it goes to a salesperson. If you ask me, I think in a complex world that we've all chosen to live in, before a salesperson picks up a lead, it should have two, three, or four touches from marketing. Yep. And I mean two-way touches before it goes to sales. Well, yeah, I mean, we're not in mass selling anymore, right? Like we're, everybody's got a TV, everybody's got a toaster. Like you, it doesn't work anymore, the traditional media. That's where digital came in to do that targeting. And you're right, like managing the brand, getting that out there, communicating those objectives. But there's a selling component of account-based selling, of nurturing specific candidates, the personalization and the customization that's needed. And understanding, again, that customer journey to get to warm them up, right? Before they get on the phone or before they submit, raise their hand in some way, they should be warmed up. And then I think the big piece too is the connection between the salespeople to know that this person is not wrapped up with a bow on it, ready to buy. You know, it's a warm lead that you got to jump on and start working it. Correct. And I think all the research shows that when the person wants to, okay, imagine you have a potential prospect there who may want to buy what it is you're selling. All the research shows that when they make their first action, they want a super fast response. But that doesn't mean to say you throw a name and email across to the salespeople. Does that? What it means is that should stay with marketing, with lead nurturing, as far as I'm concerned, until you get at the point where the company decides, and that's between sales and marketing, this thing's ready to be transferred to sales. At that point, the salesperson has to wrap their heads 
around the previous dialogue and act not on what you want to say about your product or service, but that brief set of dialogue touch points so you know what the customer cares about. That's the big thing. And if I just want one other thing I want to say in here, we always believe, if I say, here's exactly my target market, at any one point in time, roughly 85% of my target market have got something else they're going to do right now. They're acquiring a company, they're being acquired, they're growing, they're shrinking, something's happening, they're too busy to talk to me. That's fine. I want to find the 15% who I might buy from me. But the other 85% marketing's job is to keep that relationship going. Because next year, the year after, five years' time, I want to come to me. That's not a salesperson's job, that's marketing's job. I think that that's really interesting, like setting triggers to put them in different buckets of like email nurture or text nurture or sending them newsletters or what have you, you know, depending on the organization, that's an interesting perspective that basically all things need to line up before sales is ready to engage and marketing has to keep them warm. That conceptually is something that hasn't been at the forefront of my thought. So I got to think through that more. That's interesting. I mean, obviously that's a key thing. We're quite lucky. We work with some venture capital companies. And these guys tend to go in in private equity, they buy a company, triple it inside three or four years, then go to put a public offering. And they all follow exactly the same pattern. They are exactly the same pattern. Who am I trying to sell to? What problem am I trying to solve? Find my 15%, market to do the rest, sales convert. And it's that conversion rate, which is how I would judge marketing. Yeah. So guys, let me kind of pull us back toward coaching a little bit. I love this conversation. I can tell right now we're going to have to have Bill back on and go down these couple of rabbit holes. So pulling it back toward coaching, Bill, sales coaching specifically, how do you identify the right coach? You know, you have internal coaches, you have external coaches, you have trained coaches, you have amateur coaches. How do you figure out what's the right coach for your sales organization? Yeah, it's a good point. Here's what I believe. On the word of coaching, by the way, coaching has got a mixed reputation. You have a lot of people out there who want to coach you to be the best version of yourself, to make a million dollars, to have a helicopter, that, that's fine. That's not my world. A coach helps me be a better professional version of myself. That's the big thing. Now, if you're a manager, you better be developing your coaching skills or you're going to get munched because you're going to get sacked one day. We don't need managers. If you're not there to improve the performance of your team, the steam is going to roll right over the top of you one day because we don't need that level of, of management any longer. Mid-tier's gone. So one, you better be a manager. If you're looking how do you find a coach for yourself, the good news is there's lots of great ways of doing it. And the best way, one of my favorite ways of coaching, is to coach yourself. Now, to coach yourself, it's, it's a tough thing, man. You've got to buy that. Accountability and coaching are two halves of the same coin. Look at this way. Imagine you say to yourself, okay, well, here's where I am. I'm pretty good, but maybe I don't ask enough tough questions. Maybe I'm not so strong at relationship development. Maybe I'm not so strong at follow-up. Maybe I'm not very good at aligning my internal resources for the complex, but whatever. Be honest with yourself. Then hold yourself accountable. Now, give yourself a bit of a goal. Now, we all talk about smart objectives. I have a lot of problems with smart objectives because the research shows you that smart objectives companies underperform the segment median. They're actually companies who align themselves to smart objectives underperform their peers. So I was like, well, hey, Bill, in case our audience have never heard of SMART, what does that stand for? Okay, here's SMART. In the good old days, we were saying an objective should be specific, measurable, 
actionable, realistic, and timed. So, well, that's fine. I will grow sales and blah, blah, blah by 25% by the year's end. Obviously, it's going to be true, right? Weirdly, those organizations that use SMART objectives very closely underperform. Now, I thought that's strange because most of my business life, I've used SMART objectives. How could that be? That I realized. The reason when I was trying to use SMART objectives was I did what so many people do who use them was I lied. You would just lie about your objectives. You would set your objectives too low. You would sandbag them. You would cover yourself with a lot of big margins of safety. So here's what I'm going to say to you in terms of coaching. When you're coaching yourself and when you're coaching your teams, because I really want to talk to sales managers. That's who I really think that I care about right now. When you're coaching yourself and your sales managers, smart objectives are, I understand that, but they're deceptive. Here's what I think you need. Any objective that you set for yourself or your team, one, it must be motivating. You've got to want to do it. If you don't want to do it, you're not going to do it. You'll find the excuses. It's got to be more motivating in here. Second thing in here is it must be aligned to what the company wants you to do. Now, for example, say you have someone who's technically great. They know all about the product, they know all about the industry, but it just isn't working with their work, their interpersonal skills. So, one, got to motivate. Two, interpersonal skills is a critical skill set for us to develop, so it must be aligned to the company's objectives. Three, there's no point in beating people up because they fail, because people tend not to know where to start. So there must be a clear, practical first step. And the last thing, it's got to be stretch. So it must be motivating, it must be aligned to the company's objectives, there must be a practical first stage so you can know if they've done this thing or not, and it's got to be a stretch. Now when I'm coaching, personally, I use those four MAPS maps, and all of our team have nice clear maps objectives. If it's not stretched, it's not aligned, doesn't motivate them, I don't know my next step, you're wasting your time. So as a coach, that's a good tool to use. I love that, and I love that you have a process and a way to make that easy to understand so tactically, if I'm a sales manager for an oil field service company and I'm looking for help for my sales team because things have changed, what should I be looking for as far as finding a coach? What if I've identified that my culture has not changed in so long that internally I really don't have a coach that can help bring in new ideas or new ways of doing things? How would I go out and try to find that right coach for my sales team? Yeah, I think you're right in the idea of the culture because this is why I'm always cautious with the generic Let's find a coach. Because a coach has to speak your language. Every culture has its own language. Now, we live in a world of complex B2B sales and marketing. We love that complexity with subject matter experts, complex buying groups. That's So the coach has to breathe and live the same world that you do. If you don't see some level of reflection when you look at them, they look a little bit like me, then it's not the wrong coach. We don't want people to make our people happy. We want people who make our people happy because they'll be more successful. So spend time finding any external coach and find a coach who is driven by business impact. So if you're looking for an external coach, just say, can you tell me sometimes you've had business impact? Can you explain what you've done and why? So you've got to make sure you've got someone who speaks your language and has a strong business focus if you're looking for an external coach. So you've done this for a very long time. I mean, I know you've worked for some very, very large companies. When you look at a sales organization, the hierarchy, on one end, you have frontline salespeople. And on the other end, you have a senior VP of sales or a chief revenue officer. 
in that range of hierarchy, where is sales coaching making the biggest difference in the organization? So if I had a budget, where do I spend that budget to drive the most results from my coaching engagement? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a classic question. And here's how most organizations look. You've got your CRO, your VP sales up the top, and they report into the CEO, and they care about EBIT and margin and da 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 And then you've got salespeople, and they particularly care about hitting target. Then you've got your sales managers in the middle. But here's the magic spot. If your sales managers are not coaching, everything else will hit the sand. So if you're going to spend money on coaching, make sure you're transforming your managers into people who can manage using more coaching techniques. Because in any complex organization, the frontline manager, that's your change agent. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked earlier about how Matt and I believe that sales and marketing people should be joined at the hip. I think it's a great validation that you think the same, even though we haven't talked in 10 years, however long it's been. But so we've been talking about coaching salespeople. At what point, Bill, would you expand that coaching to the marketing people to make sure that you're driving common goals? Mm, That's a great question. Now, remember, a large part of coaching is getting people to adopt processes. We apply processes in different ways, but we must have a common process. And one thing we love to do is to say, look, I think Matt mentioned the customer journey earlier on. Well, the customer journey is always pretty much the same. Every buying decision in the history of humanity goes through the four same process steps. Awareness, interest, desire, action. So what you've got to do is get everyone aligned. A sales process or a customer journey process that hits awareness, interest, desire, action. One of the things that we love to do is we love to have, call it marketing, lead generation, client nurturing, customer journey management, PMs, call me like, get those people training with salespeople. Because once they are all on the same core process, I'm going to work on the basis that marketing people should be smart enough to say, how do I apply that to my thinking? You see what I mean? So we get them all in the same block and tackle training, get the same basic thing, how to ask value questions, how to form relationships, how to qualify. Give everyone the same basic training. Salespeople will use it directly. So marketing people will go, okay, and they can nearly always transfer it to their own world. So get everyone in some boot camp training, get them all running through the mud together and get the same basics and drill. No, I, I think that that's really, really valuable because specifically most marketing people come up as marketing people. They don't come up as salespeople like I did. And so, you know, in my opinion, marketing is just the extension of that sales conversation forward, right? And so it's the pre-sale component of it, right? And so a lot of those marketing people are looking at things from different objectives and they're not looking at it like salespeople. So I think training them together getting them in the same room, having sales understand marketing, marketing understand sales, because there's a lot of really smart marketing people. They just haven't been brought up through those concepts and even AIDA concepts to salespeople, right? Like when I was in sales, that wasn't front and center from a training standpoint. And so blending those two worlds, I think just extends it, right? Sales is one long conversation is what I was always told. And so that's what we're doing here is just extending that conversation instead of being two separate conversations. Exactly. And I think we have to work on the basis that let's leave brand marketing to one side. But when it comes to the actual practice or practical field marketing in here, it's exactly the same objective. The fastest path to money, 
That's the gig. Yeah. That's why welcome to work every day. What's the fastest path to money? And the fastest path to money is happy customers. You can't make them happy until you know the problem that you solve. Now, if we can just go into one quick thing here, and it's classic hardcore marketing. There's a very, very, very famous American academic called Philip Kotler. Kotler pretty much invented marketing. It was Mr. Kotler invented the four Ps of marketing. Now, he also did one other thing. And he says, what am I selling? There's three component parts to your product. There is your core product, which is the physical thing you're selling. You're writing a data sheet. There's the augmented product, where you're adding all your services and nice things to it to make it all look lovely. And then there is the whole product. People buy the whole product. Salespeople sell the core product. So very often, what salespeople are selling and customers are buying are not the same thing. Marketing's job is to join those two things together. What's the whole problem we are solving? This is why marketing people should co-pilot with salespeople as often as possible to look for what problem am I really solving? That's what I think is the, where the magic comes. Well, one of the things that we might want to say this for another podcast, Mark, but marketing in customer retention, I think, has a really core place to play. And a lot of people don't think about that, right? You're just getting people in the door and you expect there's going to be this much churn. Marketing can really help with that attrition rate. Customer service and marketing could work more closely together to extend the life of those clients and also referrals, right? Bill, maybe you could talk a little bit about generating referrals from existing clients and how maybe marketing would play into that. That's brilliant. And that's a great thing because the marketing is all about the long-term relationship between two organizations, right? It's all about the long-term. And we often think in sales, and we're guilty of this, because although we are attractive, witty, and good-looking, we tend to be a little bit short-term sometimes. Selling is not about the deal. It's about the customer. That's the big thing. Now, we're salespeople. We like to do the deal and go and do something else. Because we're short attention span people, right? Oh, what's next? And off we go. Somebody has to do the rest. Now, the customer experience is delivered by customer service. And let's be quite frank, customer service, engineering, they actually deliver the thing we've sold. The relationship has to be maintained by marketing. Now, you're talking about social selling. Some of our clients, and typically maybe 20% of the people do this, they will really go on put their presence out there, typically on LinkedIn or quite often YouTube. This is the individuals who do this because they know what they're doing is they're putting a message out there all the time and the people that are seeing that aren't necessarily new prospects, it's existing customers. Now, those existing customers, let's just say you sell to someone now here in 2023 and they buy your thing. Five years' time, guess what? They've moved company. And when they move company, if you've maintained your relationship with them, which is marketing's job, when they move, they take you with them. And my little team here in Switzerland, we have a team of seven full-time sales staff in here. We have a 91% retention rate by revenue. 91% of revenue comes from last year's customers. We have an eight-year average customer life cycle. So we do pretty good at keeping customers. Not because salespeople are spending their time drinking cups of coffee with their happy customers, because we're pretty darn good at making keeping ourselves up there on LinkedIn, and it super works. 
All right. So guys, let's stop this conversation now. Matt, you saw me write it down. I think customer retention is going to be another episode and we'll invite Bill back and go deep down that rabbit hole. That's a huge thing for both sales and marketing. Unfortunately, guys, we've just about actually ran over our time. So Bill, if people want to get in touch with you, I think I'm going to put your LinkedIn profile and also the link to your Sandler page if you're okay. But you also volunteered an ebook on actual coaching. And so we'll make that available as well. But if people wanted to get in touch with you and learn more, is that the two best ways, LinkedIn and your contact page on Sandler? Yeah, well, the very best thing to do is, by good luck, I am the only Bill Morrison in all of Switzerland. It's not a common name. It's <laughs> There's no Bill in except me. You just type in Bill Morrison Switzerland on LinkedIn, you'll find me. And obviously, we have some people that will have my LinkedIn page as well as I do. Ping us, no problem at all. Mention OG, mention the podcast down here, we'll like you, and we put content out too, not anything like yours, but we put some stuff out there. And if you want to talk to us, we're always happy to talk to any friend of Mark, it's a friend of mine. <laughs> yeah, and for our oil and gas listeners, especially our service companies, get a little bit of coaching for your sales team. The ROI is immediate and very obvious. You just drive good revenue, and Bill's one of the best out there. This is the place where we do our product review. We actually don't have a product. That's actually not true. We actually do have products, Matt, that we have to get distributed because somebody sent us something to review. So just stay tuned. Connect with Matt and I on all our social channels. Those are also in the show notes along with Bill's contact information. We're still working on our insiders group. LinkedIn failer tip of the week. And Bill, it seems like you have one. Well, we do have a fail. Now, despite my charming Scottish accent, I live in Switzerland. Now, Switzerland is a very strange country that we have three major languages, French, English, and Italian. Thing is, multinational organizations can't cope with that. So they assume we're all German. Now, the problem with that is that a lot of us don't speak German. So basically, all the multinational communication that we get from major global companies goes straight in the trash. And the big fail for that is, are you in any way culturally attuned to who you're talking to? So that's a major fail for me, I would say. Yeah, that's a major fail to actually approach somebody with a message that's not even in their language. That takes just a few minutes to sort that one out. All right, Bill, this has been great. In fact, it's been so great. I can tell already we have you back on the show. Bill's contact information is in the show note, everybody. Great conversation. Thanks again, Bill, for your time. I know it's an afternoon over there, but I just this was great. Really appreciate you coming on. No problem at all. It was great meeting both of you, and I'm always happy to come back and talk to fellow professionals, okay? All right, guys, remember, make a difference and not a sale. Check us out next week for another enriching and cheeky episode of Oil and Gas Sales and Marketing Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.